Welcome to the Power of Positivity podcast. I'm your host, Nick Harris. This is a podcast where you find the positive in every situation, where my guests and I share our very personal stories of struggling with hardship, addictions, feelings of hopelessness, rage, depression, and so much more. Where we share why we decided to change our lives for the better, how we overcame adversity, and how we transformed our worlds into places filled with gratitude, love, and joy. Ultimately, the Power of Positivity, P.O.P. podcast is here to help you realize and stand in your true power. The P.O.P. podcast is here to show you that happiness and success are truly available to all. What's up, good people? My name is Nick Harris, and welcome to the Power of Positivity podcast. Each month on this podcast, I'll be interviewing a guest. My guests are people who don't necessarily fit the mold set by society. People who are trying to do better today than they did yesterday. And each month, I'll be doing a solo podcast episode as well, mainly because I've got a lot to share. I've been blessed to be able to do a lot of things and live a lot of life at my age. I was once a beer chugging meathead. I would drink 40s almost every night in college. I was the party captain of the rugby team. I loved to shoot the boot and I would lead our team in drunken rugby songs. I smoked pot all day, every single day. I'd take four foot bong rips, smoke joints or however I could smoke it. That was my life. A bong rip for everything. Gym, bong rip. Practice music, bong rip. Gotta go to the store, bong rip. I co-owned the bar called the California Burger Bar with my good mate, Permanent Mark, in Palma de Marca, Spain. So I lived in Spain for two years. That was nuts. I've toured all over the world playing heavy metal music with my band and I definitely partied up a storm. This is the life I lived from the age of 22 to the age of 37 and I'm 43 now. I partied. I smoked pot every single day. There were times when I drink every day of the month. There'd be months that I'd go without having a single day off of drinking. I lived this life for literally 16 years. <laughs> Sorry, mom, that you have to hear it this way. This is the life I lived until I got sober. I went from absolute party animal and absolute super stoner to where I am now. A vegan yoga instructor with a bunch of tattoos, and I've been sober for six years. Ultimately, for my own story, where this all started... <laughs> it all started, believe it or not, uh, in my mother's living room uh, when I saw for the very first time the Smells Like Teen Spirit video by Nirvana. I just remember, like, it stopped me in my tracks. I had never seen anything like that. And mainly, the part that got me was Dave Grohl on the drums. I just, like, had never seen anything like it. I had never seen anyone like, mashing on their drum kits and, like, I didn't know much about, I didn't know anything about drums, but I did know that the, the rack Tommy had was like not the regular size. I knew like that caught my attention right away. And then just the way he was just smashing on drums, I thought that was like amazing. And I remember I watched a couple other videos from my mom's living room. Like I remember the first time I saw the corn uh, blind video, uh, we didn't text back then, but I remember like calling my best friend, Kyle. I mean like, dude, what? Have you seen this like band called Corn? There's a guy in Adidas jumpsuit with dreads, but they're playing metal. I remember just being freaked out about it. But um, I saw the Dave Grohl. Uh, I saw Dave Grohl mashing. 
So on the Nirvana video, and I was like, that, that's it, dude. Like, that's it. I'm, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And that's exactly what I'm going to do with my life. Uh, at the time I was like 14, maybe even 13, but I, I didn't know how to, to do that. But I knew that that was the dopest thing I had ever seen. Um, and then, you know, fast forward, maybe six months, a year, whatever it was, uh, to the following summer, my cousin, Damian McGee, uh, he, at his dad's house up in their, like up in their top floor, he had a, a drum kit and he was super stoked. And he was like, yo, let's go to my dad's house and play drums. I was like, oh, all right, cool. Let's go over there. Like whatever, like I'm down. So we went to his dad's house. Um, and upstairs he had a, this drum kit set up. And at the time, like the hit song, the big, and it was, San, I should tell you that this is San Francisco, California. So, um, you know, I grew up in Redding. I was born in San Francisco, but I grew up in Redding, California, which, you know, hip hop, R&B, <laughs> those are just not, the, not the scene, you know? So, uh, I am very much a product of my environment. I should say that, you know, my day to day was in Redding and I listened to, you know, I guess I'm fast forwarding a little bit here, but I listened to tons of punk rock and tons of, you know, Nirvana. It was like my jam, dude. That was like it. That was it for me. But Anyway, so in San Francisco, um, we were at my cousin Damien's house and Mary J. Blige had just come out with Real Love. And we sat there at my at Damien's drum kit for, I don't know, days, a couple of days at a time, just like trying to figure out the drum beat. And if you ever get a chance or you have never heard the Mary J. Blige um, Real Love song, go check it out right now. Pause this. Go check it out. This is drum beat. This is so distinctive, and it's it's so dope. But it's um, it took us a long time because it's kind of challenging to like keep the right or the hi hat hand going and do this kick drum pattern. But we went back and forth, 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 and we just took turns going, 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 and finally we could both just like rock it. And that was my freshman year, the summer before my sophomore year. So I knew. I could do it. I was pumped on it, but like, I didn't go home and start playing drums. You know, fast forward to sophomore year, it's football season. I played football, you know, all through most of my life. Um, so American football, I should say, for those of you listening in, you know, another place outside of the U.S. But yeah, so my sophomore year of high school, my second year of high school, my best friends, Kyle Goodeth and Adam Rich were going to start a band because that Kyle played bass and Adam played guitar. If I have, have the story right, Adam played first because his brother, Chris Rich, was already playing guitar. Um, so they were going to start a band. And they were talking about getting a drummer. And I was like, whoa, whoa. like I'll play drums. And they all kind of laughed. And I was like, no, seriously, dude, I can play drums. And they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever, 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 Harris, you know. And I was like, dude, if I get a drum set, will you like give me a chance? And they're like, yeah, of course. You know, like literally these are like two of my best friends in the world. So they're like, yeah, of course. So I, I went home. That was actually at Kyle's house. I went home and I was just from that day on, I was like grilling my mom, like, mom, can I get a drum kit? Mom, can I get a drum kit? Uh, um, probably drove her crazy. Uh, she's like, yeah, fine. Get a drum kit, you know? And like, you know, but it had to be approved by my dad too. Cause that's how it works. Like, you know, I was at my dad's house and the drum kit was going to live in my dad's house. My dad had more space. And my dad's like, yeah, whatever, you know, cool. Get a drum kit. I don't know how I did it. I scrounged up some money. I remember it was $300. And I don't know, I was doing some extra chores, whatever I did. Somehow my mom was just super cool. She knew it was like a creative activity. So she was stoked about it. 
And anyway, long story short, I got this $300 drum kit. It was a Synsonic, I believe. It was a Synsonic. And I remember years later, I actually saw a JCPenney's catalog. And it was like the drum kit that JCPenney's sold. So you can imagine the quality of this drum kit. It wasn't very good. Um, but it didn't matter. All I know is my my dad went on a Saturday afternoon and he picked up this drum kit. right? Or maybe he did it on Friday. He got it Friday night, put it in the garage, and then I played football on Saturday because my high school, Mercy High School, didn't have lights. So we played our home games on um, on Saturday afternoon. So I went, played the home game, and then I went home with my dad. Um, and then I went to the garage. My good friend Brian Anderson, he and I are like, okay, let's let's figure out how to set this up because we didn't know what to do. All we knew is we saw videos, and I remember my drum kit or my cousin's drum kit. So anyway, we took the drum kit from the garage brought it downstairs into my dad's house. So, so my dad's house had like a basement, but it was like a living quarter uh, with a big living room and two bedrooms and a bathroom. And basically that was the party spot from basically call it, you know, sixth grade until, <laughs> until my dad passed away. So uh, we, of course we didn't drink in sixth grade, but that's where we would have people hang out. Cause out that back door, there was like a pool anyway. Uh, so we set the drum kit up in this corner and that's where that drum kit and my drum kits in life lived always in that corner. There's a window seal on the left and I set it up with the, you know, the stool in the back right corner, back of the corner. And I like faced the fireplace. So I faced out to the room. Um, I set it up and then Adam and Kyle, and I don't remember, but we always, every weekend we'd party at my dad's house. It was like the safe place to party. Like my dad would buy us beer and it was like, cool. We kind of had agreement. It wasn't really an agreement, but it was kind of like the unspoken thing where we just didn't drive. So parents were pretty cool with us partying over there. So it was, that's where we went. You know, we went to my dad's house and, um, that day Kyle and Adam brought their guitars over and their amps over. And, um, we started playing Weezer songs. That was it. Like Weezer, the blue album was huge. That like definitely had a huge impact on us. We were singing all those songs at the time. And yeah, um, we were playing Weezer songs. Um, and, you know, I think Adam had a couple of originals, but we didn't know. I didn't know. I, I just knew I could do it. So we literally started the band that day. Um, and that was it, dude. And that band was called Fluorescent Brown. We ended up getting Matt Froom on lead guitar. It was Adam Rich on guitar, Kyle on bass, and myself on drums. And from that very first practice, the very first time I ever I played my own drum kit, it was the very first Flesh and Brown practice. And I started a new habit, a new pattern of life where we were drinking. And I always had a beer. So basically from that moment on until the day I quit drinking, which I'll get into later, I drank beer and played drums. That's just like how it was. Of course, not every single time I played drums, but for the most part, if we had a band practice on the weekend, which we mainly practiced on the weekends, you know, I was playing drums, I was drinking beers. That's just how it was. Like from literally 15 years old till I quit drinking beer, quit drinking at 37 years old. That's how I played drums. That's how it always was from literally day one. Um, Yeah. So moving on, you know, from high school, I went to St. Mary's College of California um, like the first week or two I met who was still one of my best friends in the world, Ben Froelich. Um, I met him and, uh, he was out like 
there used to be this like snowboard trip parties things. I don't know. Some of you might know what I was talking about, but there was like these big weekend party things where you buy a party pack and you get your passes snowboarding, your passes into the bars, and then you just go party for like the weekend and snowboard. And Ben was selling one of these, but he was listening to Blink-182, Cheshire Cat, while he was doing it. And then he had a longboard. I'm like, dude, this guy's dope. I'm like, what's up, dude? I didn't know anyone else knew Blink. And he's like, dude, I'm from Southern California, bro. Like, yeah, they're from San Diego. I was like, I didn't, like, I didn't even know that. I just knew that Blink-182 was a band that we liked because in high school and to this day, it was Lagwagon, No Effects, uh, Face to Face, Strung Out, Blink-182, Rant, I don't know, I already said Rancid, but Rancid, like, all these bands were like the bands we listened to. Like, I was in love with punk rock, Pennywise, like, of course, we listened to tons of Nirvana. And of course, like my first rock and roll experience ever in my life was my dad sent me, gave me this Jimi Hendrix record, Band of Gypsies. And I was just like, what is this? This is like amazing. But anyway, long story short, um, Ben Froelich and I, uh, and then our good friend Derek Holmberg, we started a band and we, uh, we called upon our good friend Susan Nation. We were all athletes. Ben played soccer. Derek and I played rugby and Susan played on the women's rug on the women's soccer team. Uh, I believe we called it Jake's kids, which is kind of a silly name, but our trainer, <laughs> the athletic trainer at St. Mary's, his name was Jake. So anyway, it wasn't a very serious band, but it was a way to stay, you know, playing drums. But throughout college, I partied, I partied, I partied, I partied, I played rugby. Um, back then before St. Mary's was winning national championships, they in rugby, we, it was very party, very party oriented. So we raged, we partied like, you know, so, um, from literally my freshman year of high school and all through college, I partied, we raged. I got the worst grades ever. I did well enough every fall term, uh, cause rugby was a spring sport. So I got, I did well enough every fall so I could play rugby in the spring. But then basically as soon as spring, as soon as the last rugby match came, done. I was out. I was partying. I was drinking 40s in the daytime and stuff like that. Um, that's a whole nother conversation I'll get into, but I partied, you know, I didn't value school and music wasn't my forefront at the time, but I still, it was still like huge in my life. Um, from college, Ben invited me to move down to his house in San Clemente and be in his band uh, with his little brother, Boomin, uh, Bosco. And Nick Streeter, we all started a band called In Stride. Um, it was very pop punk. Um, their favorite band, like all those guys' favorite band uh, at the time and still to this day, was Strung Out. So it was very like Strung Out meets Face to Face because those are just our idols, you know. So we started that band. And of course, that whole time we partied. Basically, Boomin and I would smoke pot all the time and we drink 40s. <laughs> um yeah that's basically how it goes that's how it went and then from there um i was in that band for a little bit we were you know for probably like call it two years my sophomore and junior year we did in stride and then um there's a little ben was a little ben was like a year or two older than ben was two years older than me so when ben graduated i basically focused on rugby and then I think we played a couple of shows here and there, but it wasn't a big thing. But Ben actually started another band later, which I'll get into. Um, yeah, so I should say, actually, this is a good time to tell you this, but uh, Fluorescent Brown, my high school band, and then my college band in Stride, both had members 
then went on to start significantly bigger bands, like real bands. So Adam Rich from Fluorescent Brown went on to go and meet up with Mark Berry, who was, I mentioned earlier, Chris Rich, Adam's older brother. They, they all went to UCSB. So if you went to Mercy High School, you either went to the UCSB, uh, Chico State, or like I went to St. Mary's. And of course, that's not the case, but you know, that's what it seemed like a lot of us went to these different schools. But they went down to Santa Barbara and um, they originally started their band. And then Kyle was the bass player, Kyle Goodith. And then there was a whole thing where Kyle got kicked out of the band. It was just this whole thing like, all of us like picked a side kind of thing. Well, actually not all of us, like people like Stefan Schweitzer, some of my best friends, they didn't pick a side. They just wanted to see their friends be happy. Long story short, I picked Kyle's side. I was really pissed off at Adam. But anyway, we got over that stuff when Kyle passed away when we were 19 from spinal meningitis. That's uh, another story for another day, but that was uh, definitely a pivotal, pivotal point in my life. But um, yeah, Adam went on to start a band with Mark Berry, uh, Jake Fowler, uh, Joe, I can't remember Joe's last name. Um, I'm forgetting some other names here. I should have done my research before I did this, but yeah, uh, Lyle, they started a band called Pressure for Five. Pressure for Five did, did really, really well. They toured a bunch and they ended up signing with DreamWorks. Uh, and they did a really good thing. They had a, a video called, uh, Beat the World. And that was actually on MTV. I remember when <laughs> that stuff came out, it was just amazing. I was so proud of Adam. I was super incredibly envious. It took me a long time to like let the envy and jealousy go. But I was proud of him, you know, at the most part, you know, he was doing his thing. He worked super fucking hard. He's just great, dude. You know, great. Adam's still a great friend. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, and then Ben went on with Jake. That's a whole other story. Jake Fowler. They started their band with Bosco and they called it Mad at Gravity. And that band did really well. Um, both bands, you know, disbanded but ultimately both those guys both those bands went on to do pretty cool things and i was super proud of them so after college i um i really wanted to start my own band and i bonded with austin Comnick. i believe it was my freshman or my sophomore summer uh casey roseman who i've been friends with since literally like first grade he lives in kyle goodest neighborhood casey roseman uh, connected me with Austin Kobnick and Austin went to Foothill. And the very first time Austin and I jammed, I had never met him before. Um, oh, that's not true. We, we had played, um, we had base, played baseball against each other in high school, but now we're like roughly sophomore year, junior year, college, wherever it was. Actually, I'd say it's more like junior year, junior year, summer, at my dad's house. We were, um, we met, he came over, he brought some MGDs. I'll never forget it. We met and we, it was the middle of the day at my dad's house and we started playing Deftones songs. And then I like, we started playing shove it by the Deftones. And if you haven't heard that song, go check it out right now. Pause it. Go check it out. One of the best records, uh, around the fur, shove it. Great song. But anyway, um, uh, Austin came and we were drinking Miller and went drafts and we started playing shove it. And then I stopped. So wait, 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 Got to get it right because there's, there's a drum intro that starts it. And then f- we rocked it super hard, like the whole song. And from that moment on, it was like, dude, like Austin and I had something. We had a bond and it was it was special. And then we would just jam 
and jam like all summer long. And then every Christmas break, we started jamming. I'd come home and be like, I'm home. I'm going to be home these dates. And we, we just fucking jam and jam and jam. And we'd like, you know, we we're mainly jamming old stuff, but he'd always have something for us to, to jam on. Austin was so good at that. Um, and then we decided like, dude, we need to start this. We need to make this real. We need to make this a band and we need to make this dope. And we're like, well, who can we get to sing? And he's like, Hey, Chavez, dude. Um, Chris Jarrett, we call him Chavez. Uh, but they were in a band called Flipside in high school. They went to a different high school. They went to Foothill, which is like on the east side of town, like far east side of town. But yeah, we were like, let's start a band. Let's make this work. So that was the plan. We put it in motion. We figured we'd get a bass player later. Just bass player was just not the point thing. All we needed was Austin and I, and then we'll get Chavez ready to go. And then we'll just make it work. That was the plan. Um, I went on, I played my fifth year of rugby at St. Mary's. I met coach Tim and coach Johnny Everett, wonderful human beings. Um, we did pretty well and we did very well rugby. Actually, we went to the, uh, the elite eight in rugby. After that, we, I, they wanted me to come back. I actually hurt myself my sophomore year. So I could have gotten a gray shirt, which I could have gone back and played my sixth year, but I was dead set on starting this band with Austin and Chavez. So that's what I did. Um, I went to, I moved to Chico. We decided on Chico because it was close enough to our parents in Reading. It was cheap enough where we could, you know, live a comfortable life and not like have to eat like, you know, bologna and bread. And it was close enough to the Bay area where we could build a following in the Bay area and not have to like tour constantly down there. But then also at the same time, it was close enough to Oregon where we could get to Oregon and we could build a fan base in these markets. Like, and that's exactly what we did. We basically toured as much as we could at the time. You know, we were kids. We didn't really know. Uh, we were playing a ton of like, you know, dumb shows. We'd like drive to San Diego and get paid like 25 bucks and then drive to LA get paid like 35 bucks and then drive home. And that'd be the weekend. But we just, we did our thing, you know, we made it best we could. And actually the band did really well for what it was. We were regionally successful. Um, but when I moved to Chico, I had it in my mind that I was moving to Chico to be a rock star, like undoubtedly, like I had no doubt in my mind. Actually at the last, I was a health phys ed and recreation with a teaching emphasis at St. Mary's college. That was my major. And at our end of the year party with everyone that's graduating that year, um, when everyone said they were going to do what they're going to do next, they were like, what's your next step? I'm like, I stood up and I was like, I'm moving to Chico to be a rock star. 100% of the people laughed. 100% of people laughed in class. And, and it was at a pizza parlor. And it was all good. I took it as like, all right, I'll show you motherfuckers what's up. I'm moving to fucking Chico to be a rock star. You know, and everyone laughed. It was cool. You know, like these are all like some of these people in that room are still my great friends. You know, Chid, David Chittister, Megan Kuba, all these wonderful human beings that are still my friends to this day. But anyway, moved there, moved to Chico, started a rock band. And then um, one night I came to Chico from St. Mary's. I was still in college. I was visiting my friend Lance Fox. And we, we would go to Chico and we would just party, you know, and he was like in the Chico world. And if you don't know Chico, I should explain this. Chico, California is a big party town, big party school with Chico State. You know, Playboy like used to rank them like number one party school in the nation and all these things. Like, but the bar or like the bar world's really, really huge. So like everyone in the bar world, it's like a big bar party town. Like you can walk and they used to have these Halloweens where like the streets would be packed and everyone would be drinking. It's huge, right? So one night I went 
to or Lance and I walked into Normal Street Bar. Okay, it's on Third and Normal. It's not there anymore. But I walked into this place. And as I walked in the door, I got greeted by the bartender with a shot of Jaeger, a Bud Light bottle, and the song, I can't remember what song, but it was Raising Us in the Sheen was playing in the background really loud. It was a punk rock metal bar. And I was like, what the fuck? And, and yeah, he gave me a, a, a shot of Jaeger, Bud Light bottle. And I was like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, what is happening? And he's like, welcome in, bro. And it was Chris Burris, dude. I'll never forget Chris Burris. Welcome me. That was my introduction into Normal Street Bar. I had never been there before. And I was like, what? Mind blown, right? That night, he introduced me to Brian Paddock. I might have his name wrong, but Brian Paddock was the GM. And he, Brian Paddock's bartending, like, I'm talking slinging so many cocktails. And this is like the, the, the era of the giant cup. Like, you get blacked out when you go out. For like 15 bucks in Chico, you're getting blacked out. Um, 2001 at this time, right? So Brian Paddock's bartending, he's like, I love your personality, dude. I'm like, oh, thanks, bro. I'm like, you know, thanks. I'm definitely a cocky, arrogant, big, like rugby player at the time. No, no tattoos or anything, just a big, giant fucking meathead, basically. Um, and I'm like, thanks, dude. And he's like, hey. Owen Burris is like, hey, he's moving to Chico or something like that. Somebody's like, you move to Chico. You got a job. You come here right here. You get a job. You move to Chico. You get a job. So I was just like, hey, Austin. I told Austin the next day, like, yo, dude, I got a job in Chico. Let's go. Let's make this happen. So long story short, moved to Chico. We started Red with MV. We all moved into a house together, Austin, Chavez, and I. And that's where we built this practice studio out. And it was awesome. Uh, it was really good. It was, uh, you know, like I said, we didn't, we had some regional success and that's where this whole thing started for me. This like, I like to refer to it now as like this party persona, this rock star persona that I was started. I, I started in Chico, um, as you know, we were this band, we were doing this thing. I go, I worked at a bucking bar, popular bar. I can just get wasted for cheap. And then, you know, Chavez, it's not his fault, but, um, Chavez was, more of a daily stoner than I had ever been around. So then, you know, Chavez is like still like one of my best friends to this day, but we, we smoke pot every day. And like, you know, we, we'd smoke pot every single day. And like, it started to be this whole thing where our band started actually doing stuff. Our band actually played this show, Justin Maximoff. Thank you, J Max. He gave us, you know, we had already been doing pretty well in town, but then, um, not decently and well in town, and we had our big break in town was at the Brickworks. Okay. This venue was like 350 cap or whatever it was, but Adima played there and Justin Maximoff gave us a chance. We had to sell tickets and all that stuff. We sold a ton of tickets and we played, we opened this show and dude, it was like huge for us. Like I had never signed an autograph till that night. I had never like had someone like be like, dude, your band's fucking awesome. Like, I had never ever had that before. And I mean, we played the show. It was great. Like Chavez was stage diving and shit. It was just like huge, huge for our band. All the things, dude. And like, you know, that's really where it started. It got to the point where like, you know, I'd be walking around town and people like, hey, are you in Red with Envy? And like, it got to this thing where it's like, it turned into a thing. And I started thinking in my mind that I was a rock star already. Okay. And to backtrack a little bit, I mentioned Pressure 4-5 and Adam Rich. 
So Pressure for Five was doing well, and I believe they were on tour with, I think it was Alien Ant Farm, Dredge, Pressure for Five, and then there was like an opening band. I can't remember who it was, but I went from St. Mary's over, St. Mary's College is in the East Bay of California, and it's about, as the crow flies, probably 30 minutes from San Francisco, 35 minutes from San Francisco, but, you know, traffic called 45 an hour. They played, Pressure for Five played a show at Slim's, and Adam was always super cool with me. He'd always put me on the guest list. It was, like, super cool. You know, Adam, going there just to see Adam rock, I think I went with Brian Ferriula, who's still a rad dude. And he was actually, at, Brian Ferriula was dating Adam's little sister. So we got in, and we watched this show, but the part about, the reason I mentioned this particular show is because Jacoby from Papa Roach, the lead singer of Papa Roach, came to the show. And this is like a year and a half, two years at max after this is before the second Papa Roach record came out. But like this band was giant, like the video um, for Last Resort was like the biggest video in the world, dude. Like I, it was like they were huge. This band was giant. OK, and Jacoby came out solo. I will never forget this. Like, I watched him walk in. I was like, holy crap, that's Jacoby from Papa Roach. Holy crap. But see, like, I should back a track. I also say that Pressure for Five had been playing with Papa Roach, like, well before they signed their first deal. Like, or before they signed their deal with Papa Roach, signed their deal with DreamWorks. Like, the way they did it was super smart. Like, Papa Roach was from Vacaville. Dredge was from, like, the Bay Area. Alien Ant Farm was from L.A., and then Pressure for Five was from Santa Barbara. So long story short, like these bands would like tour and share trade shows. So they all kind of got big in their own regions, right? But then they would go to these other regions and they play these packed shows. So I saw Jacoby. I'll never forget this. At the end of the show, he was like the drunkest dude there. And he was like total rock star. But like everyone was like eating up everything he did. Like, no matter what, he was like, yo, what's up? Like, throw his hands up. And everyone was just, like, eating it up. Like, everyone, he could do anything he wanted to. And I was like, dude, like, that's what I want to do. That guy's a fucking rock star, and I'm going to be a rock star. I'm going to walk into a venue like this by myself and just do whatever the fuck I want because I'm a rock star. Like, I had started building this thing, and then that was always in the back of my mind. As Red Within Me started to kind of get bigger, we started getting to the point where we could, you know— pack this well i shouldn't say we packed it but it was like it was called the senator theater we like we were the first local band to headline it and it was packed but i gotta say like justin was smart smart promoter and only like opened the bottom because there's a big like like balcony and everything but anyway we did we were doing well but you know so i i had this persona of like who i thought i was i thought i was a rock star big spish Big fish, small pond. Like we would go to like LA, we do well. Like we play the whiskey, and like we do well. But it wasn't like we were walking down the street and people were like, "Hey, what band are you in?" I, I recognize you. It wasn't like that. But in Chico, Redding, a little bit in Sacramento, a little bit like in Eugene. You know, like we were doing it. Like we were a band. We were a working band. Uh, fast forward some years, Red with me disbanded. I started Armed for Apocalypse, the band I am currently in with my best friend Kale Hunter. Um. That band, you know, we've been doing it for several years, since 2007. We've just released our third record, uh, Ritual Violence, this past uh, October 2007, or 2000, 
22. But uh, long story short, what, what, while in Arm for Apocalypse, um, the way we started the band, I came from Red with Envy, which was more like a Deftonesy type of band. And I had never really listened to heavy music. Like the heaviest stuff I had listened to was Slipknot and Deftones. But Kale had this idea of being a heavier band. Like he was writing songs more like a band called Crowbar. And he was heavily influenced by this like sludgier stuff. Uh, he was in a band called Odd Man and Chico, actually. They helped us out a lot. But uh, so long, I'm not going to say long story short anymore. But so Kale, when we started our band together, he's like, hey, you got to listen to some music. You know, so he put me on to some things. It was Motley Crue, uh, Dr. Feelgood. It was Converge, Jane Doe, I believe. Um, and then it was Crowbar, Oddfellows Rest. These are the CDs I listen to constantly. He's like, listen to the drumming. You know, I got really, I fell in love with this type of drumming. Um, so I also fell in love with Tommy Lee. <laughs> so years later, uh, a couple years later, um, I found this book. You know, Tommy Lee wrote a book. And I bought it. And I read that thing in like, I don't know, I'm not a reader. I read, especially back then, I read that thing in like two weeks, Right. Front to back, loved it. I was like, this guy's a, such a rock star. And then I read The Dirt. So the movie came out a few years back, but The Dirt is the Motley Crue story, like written by them, dude. And that is like, that's it. That's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a tattoo, tattooed rock star just like Tommy Lee. That's it. There's no other way I was going to have it. I was going to, I had already gotten some tattoos, but like, when I saw the, when I read the dirt and I just saw the pictures and them all tattooed, I'm like, that's it. That's it, dude. Um, you know, I once saw team sleep, which is Chino's like other side project band and Chico and it was awesome. But Abe Cunningham came with him, the drummer of the Deftones. And then I remember meeting him. I was like, Hey, did you come to this bar afterwards? I work at this bar called normal street bar. We'll take care of you. Came back there. They came back and freaking, it was like, me, Abe Cunningham, and like one of the guitarists of Team Sleep, and Chris Burris. I mentioned him before. He was the bartender, and he was like, he walked when we walked in. He's like, "What the fuck?" I'm like, "Yeah." He just hooked us up. We used to party. We just partied so hard that night with Abe Cunningham, and like, I remember he'd said some stuff that were just like really life changing for me. He was like, "I just need to get back to work. We need to get back to work." And he was talking about the Deftones, and I remember it was like, when he says work, his work is playing music. I remember that had a real big impact on me at normal street bar. Uh, again, I met the guys from Lamb of God. Um, they were playing on a Monday night in normal street bar. And, um, we had already played red with them. They had already played with Lamb of God. We played with them in Reno on a Monday night. Um, and we did well, you know, I just remember the Lamb of God story goes like this. There's two pieces to it. The first time we saw them was in Reno. And we played with them and we got there early and we were setting up all our gear. Our gear was on the, on the floor and then they had to do their sound check. They were on their bus out front. All the guys minus Randy, right? They all walk in and they're just so haggard, so hung over. And I'll never forget being like, dude, these guys look like death. Like they were so hung over. But they all put their guitars on those slow. They all had like cigarettes hanging out of their mouth. No emotion, okay? No emotion, no nothing, barely any words. They just rip into Van Halen, Panama. 
like like it was Van Halen. They were just no, they were just going through the motions, but they all went through it, just mashed out this ripping song, just crushed it out. It was so dope. They all put their instruments down and then walked back on the bus. And I just remember being like, dude, what? Like that was the dopest thing I had ever seen. And I'll never forget it. They just smashed it. It was just so good, dude. Um, and <laughs> and then I I fell in love with Pantera and I started watching these Pantera DVDs, these vulgar, they called them vulgar videos. And they would just party the whole time. These videos they're playing in front of like so many people, as far as there I can see, full of people and just partying, taking shots and just partying. Dimebag was always so charismatic, always partying, always partying. So all these different things, all these different elements, that's what I've wanted to be. So that's what I created in my life. So I would just party. I would do all my things. I would just party, 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 smoke as much pot as I could. I'd be that guy in the corner that always had squinty eyes. Like I wouldn't leave the house unless I was high because I had had to, I built up this whole thing where like I was just always high, always hung over. Always like, oh, we partied last night, blah, blah, blah. Always constantly. That was the thing. That was all of it. I built this out for myself and that's what I lived in. That's what I lived for, you know, from literally from 2002, 2002 uh, until, you know, I just quit drinking. You know, I was just like, yeah, duh, I'm a fucking rock star. Of course, this is how I act. This of course is how I am. This is my being. This is who I am. Um, yeah. You know, we uh, partied a lot. <laughs> Time went on. I ended up getting married. I ended up getting divorced. Um, you know, Arm for Apocalypse went through like a slowdown because when I got divorced, I moved to Santa Barbara. Thank you, Craig Jenkins. He basically hooked me up. It was 2014. Arm for Apocalypse Harry had released their second record. We were like, you know, we were doing the thing. We were touring a good amount. Um, I moved to Santa Barbara. Um, then I moved to San Clemente over to Ben's parents' house. Ben Froelich from St. Mary's ended up living at their house for a little bit. Then I ended up moving to Spain, Palma de Mallorca, Spain. Thank you, Permanent Mark, uh, for getting me there. But uh, the way we used to tour in Arm for Apocalypse in these phases, in this phase, probably like 2011, 2010 until um, I moved to Spain, um, the way we toured was basically we'd all drink. There was no designated driver per se, but we would drink and it would be like, all right, how many beers have you had? Okay, how many? Okay, like, cool, cool. Four, I've had four. Like there was never a day that I drank. I never a day that I played a show without drinking. And back then, we took blasters. So blaster, a full can of Red Bull, two full shots, okay, of whatever booze you choose. At the time, in Arm for Apocalypse, I was drinking vodka uh, in my blasters with a splash of cranberry juice. So it was like, start the show, blaster, okay? Again, full Red Bull, two full shots, and then your Showtime beers. And then we toured with Crowbar. This tour was Crowbar. It was actually Sepultura as the headliner, Crowbar. Uh, and then a band called Hamlet from Spain, and then us. And when Hamlet, excuse me, Crowbar, Hamlet, and us, we all shared a bus, and it was in Europe. It was like a month. It was epic. Totally changed our band. This is on our very first record. Our first for, first real tour cycle was out with this that tour package. It was crazy. Um, but we learned something on that tour, and that was from Kirk Winstein. We call him the old man. So Kirk called it Booze O'Clock. And what Booze O'Clock was, was, the time where you could start drinking before the show, 
where you had just enough to be loose, but you weren't too drunk to play your instrument. There were several times throughout high school, college, and Armed for Apocalypse, Red with Nimby, all of it, where I was too drunk to play and I played bad. Uh, or we were all too drunk and it didn't really matter because we didn't care because we were too drunk. But we learned about booze o'clock and what that turned into being is about turned into being a half blaster. So we'd take a half blaster and then we'd drink about three beers. And that third beer would be the beer that we'd have on stage as, as our stage beer as we cheered and then played. And then, um, depending on who was driving, would be who had a beer or two. So if I were driving, I would basically have another beer or two just to, you know, mingle. And then I'd, I'd be done. We'd load gear and we'd drive. Uh, and then eventually it turned into beer blaster. So about a half a Red Bull. And then the rest was topped with beer into like a shorter glass. And then we'd take that right before we went on stage. So our booze o'clock was roughly 90 minutes before we went on stage. Kirk's booze o'clock was two hours. So we did 90 minutes. And again, it was about roughly three beers and the beer blaster. And we played good shows. And it was good. But we still, oh, I should also mention that I was smoking pot the whole time. The way it worked was like this. I usually drove, I drove a lot. So the way it would be is like Corey, Corey Vasper, the Arm for Apocalypse old baseball, he would basically roll me joints or pack the bowl for me. And I would just be driving and I'd be smoking pot the whole time. And I had this concept in my head where I would, I'd roll a blunt and it would look like a cigar. If a cop saw me, he'd think it was a cigar. I don't know what I was thinking. But anyway, that went on uh, until I quit drinking. And I quit drinking in Spain. Uh, my dad passed away in 2015. December 7th, 2015. And um, luckily I was home because I would come home. I moved to Spain, but I would come back for tours and recording. And luckily um, this tour ended like a day before Thanksgiving. And uh, my dad actually came to the show in Reading. So I got to see my dad before he passed. But on Thanksgiving day, you know, we, I think I saw him things. I saw him Thanksgiving day. And then like I was supposed to come over, so I saw him Thursday and I was supposed to come back over on Saturday, but he didn't answer his phone. It was weird. Um, I won't get into that story now, but he passed away and I ended up finding him and I called my brother like, yo, you know, dad passed away, blah, blah, blah. And then that, his passing connected me, connected me, reconnected me with a really good friend. Her name was Elena. Uh, Elena is this very special person. She, uh, she's a medium, but before that, I should say that she, was one of my best friends in high school. We were pretty much best friends all through college. And then, you know, life happened. We kind of separated, went in our own separate ways. Nothing bad happened. We just didn't communicate as much. But she also had a really good relationship with my dad. So she, you know, it really affected her as well when my dad passed. So we got reconnected and we decided, you know, we're never going to let this much time go by again. Okay, cool, cool. Fast forward a year. I partied the whole year. Um... In Spain, the way we smoked pot was with spliffs. We would roll tobacco into weed, rack tobacco and weed into a joint, and we'd smoke it. That was it. I, so I was smoking spliffs constantly, constantly. Mark and I, PM, and I would just smoke spliffs constantly. Always smoking weed, smoking like cigarettes, didn't even matter. And then I got to the point where I would get, just get drunk, and I would be smoking cigarettes. I was just, because I was guard down. Tobacco was already in my life. I was already re-addicted because I smoked so many spliffs. And I was smoking cigarettes. And actually, on this particular tour, I was home. And I remember smoking a cigarette out in front of Bella's and Chico. And Chavez looks at me. Chavez, who was singing from Red with him, he looks at me and goes, 
Harris, what the fuck are you smoking cigarettes for? And I was like, what the fuck am I smoking cigarettes for? I don't know. Um, I ended up deciding that's it. I'm never smoking again. No more. I can't smoke anymore. I can't get addicted to nicotine. I, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to smoke anymore. So, um, the next day I decided I wasn't going to smoke, but I was going to have like a last hoorah, if you will. I was going to take a, a bus to meet my mom in Sacramento from Chico's about a two hour bus ride, whatever it was. But I always, the way I did it was I would always give myself a couple of days in between um, being in the U S and Spain. And I would spend those couple of days with my mom. So what I did was Chavez had this rad four foot bong, right? Four, we call it the four footers. We're taking four footers. Anyway, uh, I took two just giant, ridiculous, like keefed on top, like all the, the get as high as you can, two giant four footers took, I basically teleported to Sacramento. I was high the whole time. And then I just didn't smoke anymore. You know, like I got back to Spain. I wasn't smoking, smoking anything about four days into it. My dad had, or I had a dream. It, it was almost a year to the day. It was like December 1st. I had this dream where my dad came to me in the dream and it was very much so like the dream that um, I would have, or not the dream, I'm sorry. Um, it was very much so like the phone call my dad and I would have after a tour. I would like, dad, what's up at home for tour? And he would be like, oh, tell me about it. And I would, it was like that kind of thing. He would be like, what happened, you know? So on this, in this dream, it was like that phone call. Very excited to talk to each other. And he said, man, where you been? And I'm like, man, where you been? He's like, I've been looking for you. I'm like, dad, I've been looking for you. I can't find you anywhere. And in my room in Spain, um, I had these like bay doors that open up to this little balcony. And I remember in my dream, I like got up I'm from bed. I'm like, dad, I can't really hear you. Hold, hold on a second. I'll go outside and like open the bay doors. And I like was trying to hear him. We had this bad reception thing. I was like, dad, check it. I, I can't hear you. I'm going to call you back. He's like, all right, all right, all right. Call me back, call me back. So uh, in my dream, you know, I, I don't know what happened from there. I just went back to sleep or I, the dream ended. And then I ended up getting a wake up call. My buzzer's buzzing because I had, um, I had a meeting like our, our, uh, Mark PM and I owned the, the California burger bar over in Spain. I, Mark started it. I got there to help him open it, ended up buying a P buying into it. And so we hired someone to help us with our books and all our finances and all that stuff. And she got there and she was like, Nick, you were very late. I'm like, Oh my gosh, whatever. I, I was all, you know, hungover or whatever it was at the time. I just, I told her the whole dream so I could basically remember it. And then that night I like wrote Elena this message on Facebook, like, yo, I had this dream. My dad came back to me. I told her all about it. And, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this or not yet in the story, but she's a medium. So I told her about it and she's like, yeah, Hey Nick, you know, your dad's spirit's very strong. You're going to most certainly like hear your dad, see him in your dreams. You're going to smell him and all these different things. She's kind of giving me a little bit of awareness of like about how my dad's spirit. She's like, yeah, it usually takes about eight months to a year for the spirits to kind of settle and she's like, you know, Nick, like when he said he was trying to get a hold of you, he was really probably trying to get a hold of you, like trying to get a, your attention. But you've been smoking pot for so long that, you know, your your brain was clouded, your brain was foggy because I had told her, you know, I had quit smoking pot. And like four days later, my dad came to me in a dream, you know, and basically what it was, was I was like, wait, you're telling me. That if I quit smoking pot, 
I can have a relationship with my dad, even though he's not here with us anymore. She's like, absolutely. That's absolutely what I'm saying. And I was like, well, then why would I smoke pot? And that was it. So I quit smoking pot. That I just was like, I'm not going to cloud any kind of anything that's going to get in the way of my, my dad, you know, being in my life. And I was so blessed and grateful. And I quit smoking pot. So that happens literally like December 1st, December 2nd. And then fast forward to Christmas night, Christmas day that year. Elena had a dream. So in Elena's dream, my dad and my best friend, Kyle Goodith, who passed away, the guy who was started playing music with, he passed away when we were in 19 of Spinal Meningitis. In Elena's dream, my dad came to her, Kyle and my dad came to her. Okay. And they came to her concerned about my drinking, but it wasn't about my drinking, like my health. It was 100% about music and mentorship. They're like, yeah, you know, she said that your dad was basically the leader of it, but Kyle was agreeing, but it was like, it was all about how they showed Elena, how music flows through me sober versus how it does when I'm drinking. And they were talking about not just the drinking for health, like I mentioned, but it was like the fact that he will drink and then not, it like slows him down. He won't play music for days in on end, which is a fact, which is absolutely true. I would get hung over. And in Spain, the drum set was like so far away. It was like so hard to get there. It was such a pain. So I just wouldn't go. I'd just be hung over. And I wasn't playing very much guitar at the time. They're like, yeah, he should be writing songs for people. He doesn't even realize it, but he's going to be writing songs for people, songs for people who doesn't even realize it. And then it was about mentorship. Like I should be guiding people, leading people. And I had no idea. All this stuff, Elena, okay, I'm, I'm weird like this. I remember dates really well. So she had this dream Christmas day. She wrote me the message. I didn't even open it until DJ, until January 18th. I opened it the day that Armed for Apocalypse was going to start this tour, right? So uh, we were back in the U.S. I got the message. I read the message, and I was like, what in the fuck? Like, are you kidding me? Like, what? Should read this message. We talk. So that whole tour, yeah, I just party. you know? All of it was just a party. I partied the whole time. I smoked pot the whole time. Or actually, I didn't smoke pot, excuse me. But I partied the whole time. Uh, at the end of the tour, again, I always leave that gap for my mom, you know? So... Um, I'm, Elena lives in Grass Valley. My mom lives in Sacramento. So yeah, I, we planned a day where I was going to meet her and we we're just going to hash it out. So that's what we did. We hashed it out. And she's like, yeah, Nick, like you don't have to quit drinking, but you know, be more intentional, like get your guitar and like play guitar more, try to write more songs, maybe drink less and all this stuff, all, all, all this stuff. Like I just didn't know what to do. And it was just so much to process. I'm like, dude, I have to go back to my mom's house right now. And my mind's like blown. I'm like, what do I tell her? She, do I tell her at all? And Elena's like, yeah, Nick, she's your mom. She loves you. She wants to hear about it. So I go back. I spend another two days at my mom's house. I don't say a word, nothing about it, nothing at all, because I'm like a coward and I don't want to have her grill me on this stuff. On the way to the airport, actually, um, she drives me to Carly's house or she meets, I meet Carly Miller somewhere. Cause Carl, I was going to sleep at Carly's house and then she, I was going to fly out the next day, but she drives me down there. And on the way I was like, Hey mom, do I, have I been acting differently? And she's like, no, why? It's like, well, I quit smoking pot like three months ago. And she's like, well, Nicholas, you shouldn't be smoking pot anyway. Da, da, da. You know, this is the whole mom thing. 
And I'm like, hold on, hold on. I got something else for you. And I told her about the dream. And, you know, she gets upset. You know, she's driving. She's she's really upset. You know, it's the whole thing with my dad. And it's just it's probably a lot for her to process at the time. I'm like, look, mom, I just need you. I'm going to send you the message, mom, okay? I just need you to read it, process it, and then just give me your thoughts, okay? She's like, okay. You know, we say bye. Two days later, I wake up, you know, because the time difference is like eight, nine hours at the time. And I get one sentence from my mom, one sentence only. And it's a sentence that changed my whole entire life. And it's a sentence that essentially has gotten me to this point right now. Her message on WhatsApp said, well, Nicholas, comma, this message means nothing unless you do something about it. And they were sitting on my bed in Spain, just like reading it. It's like, fuck. All right. All right. It's up to me. It's up to me, dude. Like, what am I going to do? Oh my God, I'm at a crossroads here. What can I do? What am I going to do? That was a Thursday. I drank Thursday night. I drank Friday night. I drank Saturday night. But I came up with a plan. The plan was this. I was going, I didn't. I didn't work at the bar on Sunday. I didn't work on Monday. And I, uh, with the bar was closed on Tuesdays. So my whole plan was just to lock myself at the crib and just not drink. Just don't go out. Don't put myself in temptation. So I did that. And then on Wednesday, when I resurfaced, I just said I was sick. Because being a bar owner and being the bartender and server, um, everyone wants to drink with you. So I was just like, oh, I'm just getting over this cold. I've been sick all weekend. I just, that's how I did it. You know, got through the weekend, made it happen. I didn't go out any of the nights. It was really hard, but I didn't go out. You know, a couple weeks got in, a couple weeks got in, a couple weeks gone on. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately about 10 days in is where the whole shift started. Um, I realized I was an alcoholic because I'd wake up about four or five every morning feeling just absolutely miserable, like sweating, like cold sweats. I felt clammy hands, like all the things. And then about three o'clock, four o'clock every afternoon, I get back to the house from doing all the bar work and I would just be so miserable. I had the worst hangover feeling. Like I would like get on the couch and I'd be like, oh my gosh. And PM's like, Mark's like, man, have a drink. And he's like, my, my permanent Mark accent has gone. I don't hang out with him enough anymore, but uh, I used to be able to do it really well. But he's like, mate, have a drink. You're fucking killing yourself over there, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I got to just do it. I can do it. I can. I just got to get through it. I got to get through it. And that's when I realized I was an alcoholic. And I realized that since I was like, you know, in eighth grade, ninth grade, I had been drinking pretty regularly. And, you know, I was just straight up an alcoholic. So what I did was I, I Googled, mapped or whatever. I found a gym. It was about 1.5 miles away, 1.2 miles away from our house. I went there. I signed up the next morning when I woke up. I always felt horrible in the mornings. They opened at 6. I was like at 5.59, like as they opened the door, I was like walking through the thing. And I I just went and I would row and I would row and I would row and I would row and I would row, row for as long as I could. You know, to be honest with you, I almost puked a few times. Like this was, these were rough times for me coming through this, uh, you know, this detox is what it was, but I row, row, row. And then after, you know, a while I started feeling pretty good. And then I started working out again. I started, you know, 
changing myself. But um, about 10 days in, 10, 15 days in it was, uh, I, I got back from the gym. I'd walk back to the gym. I walked back to the bar and I'd do the books and all the stuff from the night before. And above the cash register on the back bar, there were these two pictures of my dad. And one day I just looked up at him, thought about everything. And I was like, I looked at it and I asked him, what the fuck am I doing here? Like, what am I doing here? Like my dreams are on the shelf and I'm fucking living someone else's dream right now. I'm like doing this work to be involved in this bar. And this is not my dream. This is Mark's dream. You know, and at the time I got to tell you, like, like Mark and I had a little bit of a falling out. Not like it was a bad thing. It was just that I just realized, well, like I was like doing most of the work and he was getting more of the benefit. Like he got to party a lot more and go to the beach and stuff. And I was like, dude, I can't go to the beach. I got to fucking work. got to get this shit figured out. Anyway, um, Mark's one of my best friends and he's a huge influence on my life. And I love that man like unconditionally. But uh, yeah, that was it. I uh, asked my dad, what the fuck am I doing here? And I was like, I want to play fucking music. I want to be an arm for apocalypse. And that moment at the bar sitting there, I picked up my phone and I wrote my bandmates this like long message like, hey, check it. Some things are changing and I'm coming back. But I'm coming back on one stipulation and we have to go for it. Like there's no girlfriends getting in the way, no job, no, no, I can't, can't go on that tour because I have to work. Nothing like that. We're coming back. If you guys are down, I'm coming back and we're going for it a hundred percent. So, uh, you know, as the day went on, you know, the guys woke up cause obviously I was like nine hours ahead. Everyone agreed. And that was it. Like, you know, I, I talked to my mom about it and, you know, we put the, put the wheels in motion and yeah, I got sober in Spain you know, uh, I got sober February 17th. I moved away back to the U.S. April 28th. You know, so that was it. That was it. I moved back. And then we started touring. I moved back. I landed. Uh, we had our first band. And we had, I remember dates. But our first show was May 18th. And I remember we had our first practice like May 7th. We practiced pretty much every day. Went on that tour. Um. And on the last day of that tour, actually, we played Chico. And um, actually, excuse me, we toured that tour. And then we toured all summer long. We ended up playing 117 shows between May 18th and uh, January, I think, 18th, January 17th. I can't remember what it was exactly, but one of those two dates. Uh, on the last tour before November, um, the last show, we played in Chico at a place called Cafe Coda. And that's where I met again, sober for the first time, Scott Amick. Scott Amick was the one who got me into this space to show me that I had something to offer the world. But at that show out front, I was just stretching, doing my thing. And he and I were talking and we were talking about stuff. And I, my mom had got me this book by Lewis Howes called the school of greatness. And she didn't even know I was sober. But when I got back, when I landed and she's like, hey, Nicholas, I got you this book. I think you'd like it. He's an ex-professional athlete that did all this stuff. I'm like, cool. This is perfect for my life right now. She's like, well, why is that? And I was like, well, I haven't drank for like four months, three months. And she's like, what? Well, she was like super excited. Anyway, I was talking to Scott and Scott was naming these books and I was asking him and he was the only person I had ever met that knew who Lewis Howes was. 
I was like, that's dope. I'm like, dude, well, when I get back from this, because we played that show at Cafe Code, and then like three days later, we were going to the UK to go tour. And um, so Scott and I, and Scott was going to Boston. I was like, what are you going to Boston for? He's like, I don't do it. I'm actually, I'm doing this. Uh, I'm a motivational speaker. I'm going over there to speak. And I was like, what? All right, dude, when I get back from the UK, I'm hitting you up. So I did. I got back and I, the next day I was like, hey, I'm back in town. So what we did, we decided to start working out because I wanted to get fit, um, get fitter. And Scott was a personal trainer. So we started working out. And this whole time he was kind of picking my brain. And I didn't really know what he was doing. Uh, we were just talking as far as I was concerned. Um, but I was sober. But I also knew that I was still missing something. It had been about six months or so and I was sober and I felt pretty good. I was in the gym. I was feeling good. Like my, my body composition was starting to shift a little bit. You know, I was losing these beer fat weight, you know, and, um, yeah, I just knew something was missing though. They were still a missing piece. Sober felt good, but I was missing something. And I'm like, I feel like I need to do something for the world. I feel like I need to do something. I didn't know what it was though. So I've been talking to Scott for maybe like, you know, three weeks or a month or so. And then we were on this elliptical thing, like getting warmed up to work out. And then he asked me something about um, going somewhere. I'm like, dude, Scott, I don't, dude, I don't have any money. I don't have any money to do that stuff. Yeah, I'd love to go hang out with you, but I don't have any money. Like, I was, I, my homie Triple T, Tyler Tamani, my homie, I was just trimming weed for him. Like, that was what it was. Like, when I moved back from Spain, I moved into Triple's, like, Triple T's, like, little trailer that was about the size of, like, three, two queen size beds. And, like, that's what I lived in. And I just, trimmed weed worked on his farm and like that's how i grew that's how i made money that's how like i bought the van and all these things for the band and i'm like dude i don't have money like that and scott looked at me and said well harris what if i could offer you something where you could serve the world and get paid and i was like sign me up dude like how do i do it come to my office so i get to his office and he's got this big ass whiteboard behind his desk and he's it's like, here's what we're going to do, Harris. We're going to do a brain dump, okay? We're just going to let all of it, shoot it out, okay? We're just going to talk about stuff. We're going to put it on the board. And I was like, he's like, because I have this feeling, I, I, what I want for you is I want you to be a motivational speaker. I want you to work with me. And I was like, dude, I don't have anything to offer, dude. Like, what are you talking about? Like, you want me to go speak to kids? Because he was the, he worked for Odyssey teams and he worked for Odyssey for youth. And I was like, dude, that's crazy. You're crazy. Like kids are not going to listen to me. No one's going to listen to me. What are you talking about? I, I have no, literally nothing to offer. Um, so we did this brain dump and he's like, all right, so you play in a band. I'm like, yeah. He's like, all right, so you've been touring. Where have you toured? All right. Like, you know, name these countries, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, all right, so where'd you go to college? All right, cool, cool. Same as college got fine. Where'd you, what'd you do in college? You played rugby. Okay, cool. All these different things. He just brain dumps all these things. We just like write it all down on the board and then we finish. And he's like, look, dude, all of this is what you have to, to share. This is your story, dude. Like you can take this and show kids that they can do all the stuff that you're doing. And I was like, what? Okay. I guess I do have something to offer, but that's where it started. Uh, Scott believed in me. Scott had this idea that he wanted to start booking me. He's like, dude, put it this way. He's like 300 kids in Stockton, California. He's like, do they want to hear from you or do they want to hear from me? He's like, I got a clean shave, white dude glasses, you know, or do they want to 
hear from a guy that looks like them. Black dude, dreadlocks, tattooed, with a story to tell. I was like, oh, shit, okay. So, yeah, that's really where it started. Dude. Like, I, I ultimately got to the point where Scott started booking me speaking engagements, and then I realized, like, holy shit. I can definitely serve the world. I have I have been blessed in ways to serve people and, and show people that they can do this stuff. They can make their dreams come true. Because he's like, dude, you're doing it. Like you are following your dreams. You quit everything and you just put your nose to the grindstone to go make your band work. And I never looked at it like that. So yeah, that was a little bit long, long-winded, but that's how I got into the speaking space. You know, that was in 2017, 2018. Fast forward to now, you know, um, 2023, things have changed significantly, but it all started there. You know, it all started um, drinking behind a drum kit, you know, several tours, several shows, several parties, several shots, booze, all the bong rips you could ever take. And then um, getting sober, finding who I really was as a sober person and then realizing that. I want my life to be of service. And that's what led me here to start this podcast because I want to share this story. I want my guests to share their stories of how they went through adversity, how they went through struggle, addictions, all the things, and how they made decisions to flip it, to flip the script, to turn it around, to live in their highest vibration, to live in their highest power, to live and be the best versions of themselves, to strive to be the best versions of themselves every single day, and then to ultimately share their stories with all of you and the people that they serve. That's it, friends. That's episode one. (laughs) So that's a little background about me. It's a little more long-winded than I thought, but, you know, I don't want to cheat you any of the goodness. All right, friends, I'll I'll come back. You know, I'll tell little stories here and there just so you can keep an idea of what we got going. But, yep, the first guest, I'm super stoked about it. His name is Matt Brunson from the band called Crowbar. Uh, Check back in, and there'll be some links to get to that show. Um, yeah, thanks for spending time with me. This is Nick Harris. This is the Power Positivity Podcast. Cheers. I've made a lot of changes in my life in recent years. My priorities have shifted. I dumped what no longer served me, and I dove deep into the things that really do serve me. I prioritized the things that I love the absolute most. What ultimately got me here to start this podcast is the concept of Yes, and, but, and. And what I mean by that is this. Yes, I do go on tour with my band, but I can do it sober and not live the party life. Yes, I do teach yoga. Yes, I am a vegan, but I still play in a super heavy ass metal band. I'm here to show you, this podcast is here to show you that you can do all the things. It's not either or. You can do all the things. You can do anything you want to do. And that's why I started this podcast, because the biggest realization I've had is the only limitations we have are the ones we put upon ourselves. Of course, there are some physical limitations, and sometimes we're dealt with what we're dealt. But I want you to know that happiness and success are not off limits. Happiness and success are available to all. That's ultimately what I wanted to share in this podcast. That's ultimately what this podcast is all about. The stories we share on the POP podcast are real stories from real people who've dealt with real struggle in their lives. We think it's important for you to hear that you aren't alone in whatever you might be struggling with in your own life. 
It's important to know that you are heard, you are seen, and you are loved. It's imperative to know that you can do all the things you want to do. It's absolutely imperative to know that happiness and success are available to all, including you, especially you. This message is for you to hear. So if you're struggling today, if you're feeling low or alone, I invite you to start to change your perspective to a more positive mindset. Sure, easier said than done, right? I totally get that. Allow me to share two simple things that have helped me to find a positive in my life when I'm going through a hard time. First, I invite you to set three positive intentions today using the I am statement. For example, I am getting into bed by 10 p.m. tonight. Or I am letting go of the things that do not serve me. Or it can be as short as I am worthy. I invite you to say your intentions aloud in the morning when you wake up. The second is this. I invite you to write down three things you are grateful for at night before you go to bed. Three gratitudes. Give it a week. See how you feel afterwards. See if you start to feel a positive shift in your life. I invite you to do these things because these are a part of the own, my own work, the own things that I did in my own life, part of my own process. Not to say that my process is the best or the only way, but it could be a good place to start with. Like the great songwriter, Phil Lina from Thin Lizzy said, you can do anything you want to do. It's not wrong what I sing, it's true. You can do anything you want to do. Do what you want to. If you want to learn more about how to set intentions using the I am statement, check out the information available on my website, www.nickwharris.com, N-I-C-K-W-H-A-R-R-I-S.com. Thank you very much for listening, friends. See you again the next time. Cheers.